every kid is born with a really beautiful spirit and open heart and it's just whether or not it gets closed up by the world. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them, and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products, and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is best-selling children's author Scott Stewart. Emboldened by his own son's courage, Scott is on a mission to empower others. His son loves Elsa from Frozen, loves to wear dresses, and loves to challenge gender stereotypes. And his fearlessness inspired Scott's phenomenal book, My Shadow is Pink. In this episode, Scott explains how tough it's been to tackle the toxic masculinity culture and to address his own insecurities. He explores the importance of placing trust and control in your children and discusses the courage he draws from creativity. I started by asking Scott at what point he realised he wanted to write children's books. I wanted to be a writer or an author from, I remember being in grade three, which is what, seven, eight years old. um, And they asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I said I wanted to either be a professional athlete or an author. But then I never did anything with it, you know, so I was the very stereotypical writer who never writes. Um, There's this beautiful study that shows that something like 96% of people want to have written a book, but don't actually want to write the book, kind of like me and marathons. And (laughs) um, so, yeah, it took me until I was 30 years old to actually sit down and write my first book. And that was... Uh, brought about because my son was born when I was thought 30 and I thought wouldn't it be great if he you know one day could look on his bookshelf and there's a book with his name in it and that just kind of got me into it I totally fell in love with the process and I've been writing ever since and what do you think stopped you when you wanted to and you didn't do you think there was fear within that that is a really interesting question um I suspect there probably was probably a fear of failure. Um, and 
You know what? I, I, I think there was probably a bit of imposter syndrome in there too. Who am I to write a book? You know, I don't have anything to say. And I'd love to say imposter syndrome has gone away, but it never does. Um, actually, that's not true. Uh, you know, if I'm writing really kind of lazy work and I'm not putting emotional labor into it and I'm just throwing some words down on some paper, you know, I have no imposter syndrome because anyone can do that. But if I'm really trying hard to create something good, imposter syndrome rears its head still. Um, but yeah, it was probably a combination of those two things. Yeah, that's really interesting. It really resonates with me that because I find when I'm writing, if I write something that's coming straight from my heart, normally I, I don't feel that fear and it just sort of flows. You know, when people talk about that flow state, that's really what I feel. But when I'm sort of forcing something and I'm trying to, and I'm thinking about the result, then all those fears seem so much more in my head rather than I just sort of just, you know, writing from my heart. So my the book that you mentioned, My Shadow is Pink, uh, I wrote that in one evening. And then wow. I and then I spent four years <laughs> like tinkering and maybe I shouldn't include this, you know, maybe I should you know, add these bits in it and making it worse than making it better. You know, because you know, when I was writing it, I was in the zone, I was just creating, you know, and then as soon as it came time to, all right, I'm now going to actually put this thing into the world, you know, and it's going to be subject to other people's opinions, other people's expectations, you know, whatever people bring to this particular book, you know, as soon as those thoughts came in and I, and I wanted to make sure it catered to you know, certain things that I was trying to bring out in it, Holy smokes, it was unbelievable. You know, there was uh, a big part of the book is that the the young boy uh, wears a dress. And um, I was like, should I, I should, you know, save that for a different book because it doesn't go in this one. You know, I should, you know, no, I should put it in here. But what if, you know, this dilutes the message? It was just a debacle of <laughs> imposter syndrome and fear Four years um, until I literally, you know, it, it was literally my wife who got me past it when she said to me, you know, Scott, you know, it's just sitting there. It's not helping anybody, but it really does have a chance to actually help people out there in the world. And so I stopped looking at it in terms of like, what result would it have? You know, would people like this? You know, and I just started to move into a space of generosity how can what i'm creating actually help the world and as soon as i did that it became really easy to bring it to the world and find the things that needed change in it uh, but until then it was an enormous struggle <laughs> mm. and the feedback you've had has been absolutely amazing and this book really was inspired by your son wasn't it and i wanted to yes. ask that moment when he said he wanted to wear a dress your son did you accept that straight away or were you at all fearful for him turning away from society's expectations? You know, I would really love to say uh, that I was completely accepting and totally on board from moment number one, but that's <laughs> completely not the truth. Um, I was raised myself in a really, in an environment with really, really rigid gender stereotypes, a really rigid definition of masculinity. And you know, I had a lot of 
fears around that. You know, I was a really, you know, sensitive, kind-hearted kid and, you know, a lot of that kind of got pushed out by the environment of masculinity that I was in. You know, I was born in the 80s um, and my entire culture, my entire environment was anything that was less than masculine was bad, was wrong, um, was to be avoided. And so when he, you know, expressed to me that, you know, he wanted to, in this case, it was wear an Elsa costume. That was kind of the first bridge into things like dresses and things like that. Um, and the first time he did that, I was just so wildly uncomfortable. Um, and fortunately, I was self-aware enough to not just pass it off as just a, no, you can't do that, you know, Boys don't do that and move on. Uh, I was self-aware enough to say, where is this discomfort coming from and what am I afraid of? And I was able to figure out that I really had two fears. I had the fear of him being subject to some form of persecution, whether it's bullying or you know people talking about him or whatever it would look like. Uh, but you know, selfishly, I was also uh, afraid of what are people going to think about me, you know, as a man and as a parent, you know. So we worked through those. You know, I decided to say yes in rather than no, and immediately his face lit up with this joy that I had just never seen in him before. And as soon as I saw that, it's like, how can you take this joy away from? you know, this kid. And so he continued doing it. We continued letting him doing it. It took me a while to get through my discomfort. And, you know, the times when I was supporting him, when he asked me to, you know, wear a dress with him and things like that, it took me a while to, to be perfectly honest, it's probably still something I'm, you know, I have discomfort around, but I do it and we have lots of fun. And, uh, but yeah, no, it, it was definitely fear, definitely fears a uh, lot of, your trauma and pain that it brought up, but I was very fortunate to be able to get past that and let him live his life. Mm, I think that's really wonderful, Scott, that you're honest about that because you could so easily say, you know, all the things that you're doing now, you know, you're a real kind of um, advocate for acceptance and that's what you teach. And I think it'd be so easy for you to say, oh no, I was accepting straight away. And I think that that encourages other parents um, to know that it's okay to feel a bit afraid or uncomfortable um, because we are, as a society, so set in, in our ways. And have there has there ever been moments when you when you have felt judged? Absolutely, yeah. So um, times when I have just you know, felt it internally, um, but also times where it's been expressed to me as well, and kind of all my fears come true. You know, there are definitely times like I remember the very first time. Because for a little while, it was just contained within our household. He was dressing up as Elsa and he's playing with you know, Elsa toys in our house, you know. And then there was this moment where he wanted to bring that to the outside world, you know, and that re-triggered, you know, these insecurities, these this discomfort within me. And so we were walking down the street. The very first time he wanted to wear his Elsa costume out of the house and literally everybody 
was looking at us. Well, you know, that's probably not true. In my head, everybody was looking at us and judging us. And, you know, there were 50 people who said, you know, that's so cute. You know, you look so great. And there was one person who, like, walked past and said something really nasty. And, of course, that's the one that got stuck in my head. It wasn't the 50 supportive, you know, um, really, like, beautiful comments. It was the one bad one that just played in my head on repeat. Uh, But, yeah, outside of that, you had plenty and plenty of judgment from other parents, you know, people in our circle, uh, but on the flip side, just unbelievable acceptance and sometimes really surprising acceptance too. Yeah, and there was a beautiful story, wasn't there, and uh, someone having a very surprising reaction in the park. I'd love you to tell that story because it's beautiful. So uh, we we were, you know, just at a park or something, and um, this guy came up to me and he said, oh, so you... You let your son wear a dress. And by this stage, I was starting to get really frustrated with this question because I'd been asked it so often and uh, I was being judged on it so much. And so I kind of snapped back at him. Yeah, I am. You kind of with this tone of you, what of it? And he just started crying. This big alpha you know, the epitome of masculinity, you know, just started crying. And he just said to me, I wish I had been given that kind of acceptance as a child. It was just the most simultaneously heartwarming and heartbreaking moment where, you know, that's all any of us really want is to be fully seen and fully accepted. And so few of us get the opportunity to do so. And I think we're also taught to, especially young boys, I think that to sort of fear emotion and, and to uh, repress it. And that in some way, emotion is weak, when an, obviously, in fact, it's very human. You as a child, what was that like for you? Were you, were you I mean, you touched on it before, but were you told to repress emotion? Um, I don't know if I was ever specifically deliberately taught to repress emotion. And because I don't think that's how it works with masculinity. I think what happens is an entire culture is in on a specific joke. You know, And that joke is that masculinity needs to look a certain way and emotions don't play into that. And the entire culture with me growing up was where masculinity in my environment was defined either by how hairy you were, you know, how strong you were, or whether or not you'd had sex. You know, um, <laughs> and, and you know, everybody in media, everybody that was glorified as a man was Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Stallone, like these people who you you, know, you don't see you know, maybe maybe once or twice you don't see like these deep emotional you know, moments from them they're just blowing stuff up you know um and you're know, the entire you know, school and everything where if you do show emotions it's just seen as weakness and you're told to man up and told to not act like a girl and 
the big term when I was growing up, which is terrible, but it was all, you know, don't be gay, you know, anything that was less than cisgender, heterosexual male was terrible. And so I don't know if there were specific moments where people are saying, do not show emotions, but it's this entire cultural oppression against you, this tidal wave of patriarchy just suppressing you uh, because every, like every other man is following these same rules, you know, and you either fit in or you're ostracized. And, you know, especially as a kid, fitting in is just, you know, for us, such a vital part, a thing that we value so much that to go against that takes real courage. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we just want to belong. We all do, don't we? Not even as children, as adults. That's a very, it's a very animal thing, isn't it? To belong to a to a pack. We don't want to be outcasted. Yeah, I was reading this fascinating book. I don't remember the exact title, but it was basically um, How to Start a Cult. <laughs> and the entire premise of getting people into these really wild cults where they're doing really, really gnarly things uh, was that people come in and they're just bombarded with pure acceptance for exactly who they are. And it's the only time they've ever felt this in their lives. And so they just become so hooked and so connected to everybody in this cult that they just can't leave. I mean, if if nobody's getting acceptance anywhere else and, a, and this really bad cult shows it to you, of course these people are joining it. So yeah, we, we all just die for acceptance. And as a kid, Scott, what were, what were some of your early experiences with fear? So I, uh, I, I remember having this really kind of, well, these two really weird recurring dreams. One was I was being chased by a killer clown through my, you know, through my neighborhood, which is, you know, a lot of people's fears after they've seen the movie It. But oh, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. You know, in the 80s, you know, it was terrible. Um, mm. I actually haven't seen the new one because I'm still, like, I still feel that first one. Um, but uh, there was this other dream I had where I was playing tennis and everybody was there. It was in this big stadium and the other person was you know, basically like Serena Williams, like amazing. And I was trapped inside what you would call like water or magma or something. And I just couldn't move. You know, well, I could move, but it was all just really slow. And like the ball would go past me and I'd be like... You know, I just couldn't get to it, you know, and it was this kind of feeling of knowing like inside that you can do so much better, but you just can't show it and you can't do it. And I would always wake up from this dream just like so terrified that I was stuck in this state where I couldn't express myself. Um, yeah. Actually, this is probably, you know, coming onto this podcast is probably the first time in 25 years I have thought about this dream and I'm literally just realizing now it's yeah I it's a fear of not being able to express yourself like you know I you know what I mean um and I just found that so suppressing and terrifying 
Yeah, because um, Scott, I have a similar uh, dream, recurring dream uh, now that I'm I'm screaming, but there's no sound coming out, and I'm behind a window, and I'm trying to reach people, but no one can hear me, and no one knows that I'm in danger because there's no sound coming out, and it's so real. I mean, dreams in general, aren't they? They're so real. But I think you're right about that that meaning that we. That you know, they're not able to express ourselves, and also the other thing I get from that is is feeling powerless, which I think is such a frightening feeling, um, especially that feeling of losing your voice or not having a, a voice. And perhaps we find that power when we discover our, our identity, which is something I really wanted to talk to you about because I know you asked um, on your show, you asked Kristen Bell about how do parents help their children find their identity, which in a way is a lot about, you know, what we've just been talking about is, is finding our voice. How do you think that parents help their children find their identity? Okay, in, in the 1950s, you know, there was definitely a very strong cultural ideal. It was James Dean, it was, you know, all those people. And the only job that you had was to really fit in to that group. Like there was one table at high school that you wanted to sit at because that was the cool kid. And the entire culture was in on this. Like you couldn't get a job unless you fit in on that table. You know, everything was about that. Now we have this thing where there's infinite tables, there's infinite groups that we can fit into and we get to choose where we want to go. And I think the problem that we have as parents is we just don't let our kids experience enough different groups, enough things that we're not used to, to really be able to discover themselves. And you know, I think the biggest key in allowing a child to discover themselves is to have the freedom and the ability to take on a really diverse set of experiences, a really diverse set of people and influences, and you know, try different things on for size. You know? And I think as parents, sometimes we see some of these things our kid is trying on and we get afraid, we get judgmental. And even if these things aren't, you know, the typical term of like a phase and it's actually the person you, we should be celebrating them actually having this discovery early. So I really think helping our kids discover themselves is really about opening up the conversations, the media they see, the groups they hang out with, looking for the patterns, the things that they love, the things that they're drawn to and leaning into those things. And you know, particularly when our kids are young, we have this really unique opportunity to shape their environment in pretty significant ways. Like my son was uh, experiencing a little bit of bullying and stuff at school and there was one kid who was really, really lovely and kind. And so I organized a play date with that kid, had them come over. And when you're seven years old and you have a play date, you're immediately friends at school. You know, so I was able to shape his environment to reflect what we were kind of hoping for, which was a more accepting environment. Um, so definitely diverse experiences, opening up your bookshelf, opening up your the TV shows and things that they watch. And by opening up, I mean like really just trying out different things 
and creating a really, really safe space, free of judgment and sometimes even free of comment where they can actually try out different things knowing that you're just supporting them, you're helping them on your journey and you're not watching them with those uh you know when you you walk in um and you and somebody says oh nice of you to finally join us and it's like yeah i'm here you know, but you didn't really need to say that and it's just this kind of like bad feeling on you that sort of stuff as parents like when they're trying something out and you're just making little comments that you think mean nothing but to the child means absolutely everything you're just really allowing them to discover completely different and diverse you know, parts of the world and seeing what they are drawn to. And I also wonder, is it about allowing them to, obviously in, in, in a safe way because they're so little, but making choices for themselves, making decisions that might not always be the best decision and guiding them through that, but allowing them to at least choose. Oh, yeah. Empowerment can look in the moment a lot like failure. Like if you were to ask the question, what is the purpose of parenting outside of keeping them alive? You know, what's the purpose of it? We all might have completely different answers to that. But I would like to think that most of us, one of those, one of the answers you would come up with is preparing them for the world. And Part of that preparation is letting your child actually try and fail and discover on their own because that's what the rest of their life is, you know. Um, and I think in – I don't want to talk about other cultures because I haven't experienced them, um, but in our Western culture, a lot of the time we are removing the ability of our children to – make mistakes, to fail um, and learn, you know, because so much is done for them and chosen for them. And, you know, my, uh, my son started making dinner about once a week when he was about four years old. And every week, you know, we'd have this horrible, <laughs> you know, disgusting <laughs> meal, you know, but we ate it because we were supporting him learning and we were all really enthusiastic about it. And every night we'd dress up as chefs and, you know, do this thing. And like he would make tons of mistakes, but it was all just about getting confident and comfortable and learning this skill. Um, and now, I mean, he's only seven years old, but he makes a mean stir fry, you know, that, you know, is actually really enjoyable. But we can't do that by giving him the recipe book and saying, just make it like this. He needs to try and learn and fail. And when we extrapolate that out to so many other experiences, um, there's a lot that we just don't allow that to happen. And Scott, what would you say your greatest fear is today? Ski lifts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, besides the joke of that, but that truly is one of my biggest fears is ski lifts. As a parent, um, my fears now are around 
harm coming to my son that we cannot control or stop. Yeah. I think all parents have that, don't they? I mean, people say your, your fears are so different before you have children and then you have children and then all the fears are focused on your child. Yeah. And it's a really kind of unique, I think it's, uh, it might be Brene Brown who talks about this where, you know, she, she says that you're, you're looking at your child as they're asleep in bed and you have this pure joy and then immediately it's replaced by all these fears. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, there's this great quote that parenting is the only time you experience nostalgia for the present. But yeah, you're parenting the fear around that is, uh, I think, completely universal. Can you ever detach yourself from what's making you afraid? I mean, how do you face your, your fears? The way I generally face my fears is possibly a little bit toxic, um, and that is just to, like, charge at them, you know. But outside of that, what I would say is this is a big question in our house, you know, which is why are we doing this? You know, if we are afraid of something, why are we doing this? Is it because just everybody else is doing it? Is it because... Um, we truly want to do it, you know, and our answer tells us if we need to push through our fear or if we need to back off. You know, a really kind of nothing example is, you know, we were at the theme park recently and uh, my son's friends were getting on the roller coaster and he didn't want to get on there and everybody was saying, you know, come on, get on, get on the roller coaster. And he's, no, you know, and um, one, he's afraid of roller coasters, but two, he just didn't want to get on. Then some of the parents got into him and like, come on, don't be afraid, be brave, be brave, get on the roller coaster. And I was, it still astounds me that he did this. Um, he just said, no, I don't want to get on the roller coaster. I would have never been brave enough to say that, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, but he had the bravery to know exactly what he wanted and why he wanted it and just go for it. So I think that's you know, how we move past fears. And one really other small thing that I do is if I'm really challenged with fear around something, I look for a really, really small thing where I only need to be brave for 10 seconds and then I can be afraid again. You know, <laughs> that's so, what I do. You know, so that's exactly yeah, what I do. So a really great example is like contacting um, some people for a big project I had on. Uh, I was really afraid, like, what if this thing doesn't work? What if they think I'm an idiot? You know, what if they you know, even just don't reply? What if they copy and paste this email, change some of the words and broadcast it to the world? You know, and suddenly, like, I'm branded as this villain. You know, all these completely rational fears. And so I said, all right, so what if, I just do this. I'll just write the email because I don't need to send it, you know, so I'll just write the email. So I wrote the email and it just sat in my drafts. And then I sat there. I'm like, all I need to do is just be brave just for like 2.5 seconds to open that email and press send. You know, that's all I need to. I just, and then I can close my email and I don't need to open my email program again for a week. I don't need to look and see if there's any responses. I just need to push the send button. So I hit the send button, I closed Gmail, and I didn't look at my email again for like two days. And then I, you know, trepidatiously opened up my email and 
I, I saw I had responses and oh my, I was so afraid of these responses. I didn't even open those emails. I was like, okay, you know, I just needed you know, 10 seconds just to open it, read the first sentence, get a gauge on this thing. I don't need to read the rest of it. Oh, the sentence is positive. Okay, now we can move on. But just these tiny little things that you can just kind of build on that put you in the right direction or you know, I should say the direction that you want to go, um, but you don't need to be brave and fearless all the time. Yeah. And speaking of courage, when have you felt the most courageous? Ooh, um, I feel really courageous when I am creating, when I am writing, when I am doing something, because I know that when I'm creating, and, and I'm going to separate like a hobby creation from like you know, where I'm just painting or something, and I have absolutely no intention of ever sharing this with the world, you know, um, versus uh, when I am creating something and knowing that it's going into the world and I just have, I try and approach it just with pure generosity. And that's when I can really lean into that. Mm, that's such a beautiful answer, Scott. Oh, really beautiful. <laughs> and something I really relate to in terms of creativity. I am coming to the end now, Scott, but I wanted to ask you before I ask these quick fire questions is what is the moment in your life that changed you forever? Uh, easily, definitely becoming a father. I mean, it's a quick question, but you know, there's so many ways, but there's two ways I will highlight. One, suddenly it's, it's not just about you anymore. And there's another life that you need to think about. And there's this responsibility that comes with that, which can be scary, which can be beautiful, kind of flip-flops between the two. Um, and But then there's this other moment, um, which is, I don't know another time uh, in your life where you would experience such pure, uncompromised love. Even with you know, your partner, your wife, your husband, whoever, even with them, like there's, there's always this possibility, you know, that it won't work out or there's this possibility that, you know, maybe you, know, you, you could have been with somebody else or whatever. Even if it's like half a percent of you, you know, there's always, there's always this possibility, but with a, with a child, it's, you're not going anywhere and it's this pure love that is that has no agenda that has no requirements um, and I just don't know when else you would feel this so Scott I've come to the quick fire questions now let's do it who inspires you the most uh, my son what is the book in your life that has given you courage it's such a weird book to call out in this context, but it's called Martin the Warrior by Brian Jakes. Um, it's a, literally a book about a mouse who has a sword and battles a cat. Like, it's a kid's book that I read, you know, as a kid, and up until that moment I had uh, really struggled to express any emotions. I hadn't cried in a really long time. I was feeling really, really numb. And I remember sitting on my bed reading this book 
And I mean, the book is 35 years old or something. I'm not going to give away the ending, but, um, it's, uh, you know, this cat, this main character dies in it. And I just started weeping and I, it opened up this well of emotion for me that I didn't realize I had. So that is always my favorite book and the book that has impacted me in such a big way. What is something that has improved your life, a habit or a routine? This would almost certainly be letting go of the result and focusing on the process. And it's funny talking about children's books because like I got into like the first children's book I wrote was the result I wanted was that my son was to get to see his name in print. But after I wrote it, you know, there's always this thought, this thing's going to be a, this thing's going to be the next Harry Potter. You're like, this thing's going to, you know, <laughs> be huge. And um, so I released it, you know, for sale. And I, I mean, it went pretty well. I sold seven copies. Um, and uh, I realized in that moment just how much I loved the process, even though the result wasn't, you know, the economic result that I wanted. And I decided that I wanted to continue writing even without that kind of result. And so now, I mean, almost everything I do is around process. You know, I, I get up and I write and it, whether it's good or bad, or it's usually bad, but every now and then great stuff comes out, you know, it's all around like, how can I just lean into the process and the joy and the generosity of what I'm doing rather than thinking about what might come of it. I mentioned earlier that you were recommended to me by Dr. Pippa Grange, who I interviewed in the second series, and she is a psychologist and she wrote this amazing book called Fear Less. And she talks a lot about winning deep and winning shallow. And what you were just saying there really reminds me of that, that winning deep is about the process and the experience of it and winning shallow is all about results and the outcome when uh, my shadow is pink first came out uh, i had quite a you know, um, well-known celebrity reach out to me and tell me they really loved the book and all that sort of stuff and it was beautiful for an hour and then I was like, what about this celebrity? You know, <laughs> um, you know, when are they going to reach out? When's Oprah going to reach out? And yeah, Winning Shallow focused on, you know, the external stuff. It's never satisfying. Well, it's it can be satisfying for a few minutes, but it's never, it never is really what you thought it would be. And it's never enough you know, <laughs> it's, it's never enough. I want everybody to get down, worship me like a God. And even then it will still not be enough, but just loving and enjoying process for the sake of process. Yeah. It's an endless thing that you know, never gets filled. And Scott, what would you do if you were not afraid? <sighs> um, you know what? I, I would... I was thinking about this. I would probably do the same things now. But one of the things I wonder is, do the fears I have um, actually make the things I do, like the challenge of it, um, do they make them more 
worthwhile? Do they make them more fulfilling? Do they make them objectively better because I need to sit with it longer? So I would, look, I, I, uh, I was hit with this question um, 10 years ago and I said that I would write books and I made that leap. And so, um, you know, I, I would do exactly what I'm doing, but I would also probably start a full animation studio. Do it. Do it. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I actually am, but I'm doing it slowly rather than my impulse to just dive in and go crazy. And I've got a very selfish question for me. Sure. In terms of writing children's books, what, what's your biggest tip? It may sound like harsh, but it's actually a really generous tip that I wish I had been given. Um, and that is... So many people think they can write children's books. Um, like almost everybody goes, it's 400 words. How hard can it be? And when you look at it, yeah, I mean, how hard can it be? It'd be extremely hard. You know? um, and um, so I'd say develop taste, you know, develop, um, like read a bunch of children's books, you know, actually figure out what the market wants, you know, what it is that makes a good children's book. Like why is... The Grinch, you know, still loved, you know, so many years later, you know, why is its opening, you know, those two fantastic lines that tell the entire story, you know, so well known, you know, why is Room on the Broom such a hit, you know, um, figuring out what makes a really good children's book. Um, so that's the first thing, which I'm sure you already do anyway. Um, but then the second one, would be, why are you writing this book and why are you the person who can tell this story? You know, what's the story that only you can write in the context of you know, the story you're trying to tell? Um, you know, I really struggled with My Shadow is Pink because I didn't want to give away our whole story and it wasn't until I was really consciously asking these questions of what is it about this story that only I can tell and leaning into those emotions, those internal stakes, those philosophical questions really allowed me to clarify my book. I'm literally, I'm, I'm literally working on a book right now, which I, you know, I wrote it and I thought it was really great. And you know, I was, I, I feel as though like I know what makes a really good children's book. And you know, I was like this book is badass you know and I showed it to my wife and she's like yeah this is a good book and I you know, showed it to a few people and they're like yeah it was really good and then um my agent said you know she asked me a question she was like you know I just feel as though you have this one thing that you're trying to say and you forget it halfway through the book so I went back and I was like yeah this book is good, but I completely forget halfway through what I'm actually trying to say in this book. And so just today I finished writing it again, um, which is hard because I had to give up so much of the things that I loved about that you know, first iteration of it. And now I'm reading it going, oh my gosh, this is a hundred times better. You know, so really... You're keeping in mind, especially in a short book, you know, what's that one thing you're trying to say and holding on to that for dear life? 
Oh, such good tips. I'm so happy I asked you that question. (laughs) This has been such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you for coming on Fear Itself. No, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Thanks to Scott Stewart for joining me on the podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to ultra-athlete and international motivational speaker, Josh Llewellyn-Jones. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Ollie Giyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Mutton. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.